This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And in this episode, I have the delightful pleasure of having a friend of mine, Jason Haas, partner and general manager at Tablas Creek Vineyard in Paso Robles, California. Now, Jason is a second-generation proprietor of Tablas Creek. He's serving in the dual role of partner and general manager. He's the son of Vineyard Brands founder and Tablas Creek co-founder, Robert Haas, who is a legend in the wine industry. He grew up in the wine business, including spending two summers working at the Chateau de Bocastel, which we're going to get into a little bit later because it plays into the wonderful history of Tablas Creek. Now, after obtaining a master's degree in archaeology from Cornell and spending four years as a stint in a tech company in D.C., Jason moved to California to join Tablas Creek in April of 2002. In addition to his work at Tablas Creek, Jason's president of the Roan Rangers Board of Director, and I love the Roan Rangers, Jason, past chairman of the Paso Robles Wine Country Alliance and board member of Free the Grapes. His writing has been published in Wine Business Monthly, Wine and Vines, Decanter, Wine Industry Network, and Zester Daily. In recognition of his contributions to the Paso Robles wine community, he was voted by his peers 2015 as Paso Robles Wine Country Wine Industry Person of the Year, and 2017 San Luis Obispo County Wine Industry Person of the Year. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Oh, I'm blushing. Thanks, Scott. (laughs) So, Jason, I'm going to just jump right into it and open up with maybe a little bit of a controversial question. Is it Paso Robles or Paso Robles? (laughs) (laughs) So it took me years to learn to mispronounce this correctly. Um, (laughs) the, The locals say Paso Robles, though if you want to say the full name of the town, it's El Paso de Robles. But uh, locals say Paso Robles or just Paso. Excellent. So I, was, I think I had mentioned to you before, I grew up about two hours directly inland from Paso. And growing up, we just called it Paso. But no matter what you call it, you guys are making great wine in that community. And I absolutely love it. So I do want to kind of maybe start from the beginning. Tell me how Tablas Creek got started in, in Paso Robles. Because, you know, Paso at the time was really more of a, an almond growing or more of a different agricultural bent than just the wine industry. So you guys were early pioneers in this. Yeah, we were pretty early. We weren't quite the first generation. There's a history here that goes back to before prohibition. There's some beautiful old Zinfandel or mostly Zinfandel vineyards here. And then there was kind of the, the modern beginnings of Paso Robles that started in the 1970s with people like Gary Eberly and Stanley Hoffman. But, uh, but yeah, we were part of that, that kind of, next wave. We were the, the 17th winery in Paso and when we started in 1989. And we've had the pleasure of, of watching Paso grow up around us. It wasn't that we came into this with a connection to Paso Robles. We came into this with an idea of the kinds of wines we wanted to make and chose Paso to suit the idea. So we were discovering the place along with everybody else in the, in, in the late 80s and 90s. So the, the reason why we chose Paso comes down to what we wanted to do, which comes down to really who we are, who's behind Tablas Creek, because it was always conceived of as being a joint partnership, equally owned and run by two families with the goal of kind of translating Chateau Neuf du Pop, or at least the ideas behind Chateau Neuf du Pop into California. Um, the two families are, are my family. Um, as you mentioned, uh, my dad was a wine importer for 
decades, for the better part of six decades. And the other family is the Perrin family from Chateau de Beaucastel, whose wines my dad started representing in the late 1960s, and with whose proprietors, the, the Perrin family, he became friends. So um, he managed to convince Jacques Perrin, who was the patriarch of that family after World War II, not just to appoint him their American agent in the late 1960s, but also to agree to lend him his two sons to, tra to travel around the United States with my dad and introduce Americans, not just to Bocastel, but Chateauneuf-du-Pape and the Rhone Valley more generally. And so he would make trips every year with Jean-Pierre and Francois Perrin to different parts of the United States. California was a regular, regular destination because it's a huge wine market, but also because my dad was an early believer in the potential of California wine and represented wineries like Kistler and Phelps and Ridge and Chapelet and Spring Mountain in the 1970s. He helped launch Sonoma Coutrere in the 1980s. And the Perrins are a really interesting wine family. They're very outward looking, um, which is not a given for French winemaking families. There's a lot of French, French wine families who know every pebble of their village, but like the next appellation over is slightly foreign territory. And like you go to another part of France and that's exotic. So the Perrins were always really interested in what was going on in other places. And he, they and my dad would, would take afternoons whenever they were in San Francisco promoting their French wines and, and go to wine country and taste wines and talk about what they found. And they, they came away, first of all, convinced that California was a place where you can make world-class wines, kind of a radical idea for a French winemaking family in the 1970s. Uh, but also convinced that there was this huge opportunity in this Mediterranean climate that we have here to focus on the grapes that they were used to using from the south of France, and, and that really nobody had stepped into that space. And so they started talking about doing a Rhone-focused project together as early as the mid-70s, but it took them a decade to get the money saved up and help with their other businesses. But in 85, they put together the partnership that would end up becoming Tablas Creek and spent the next four years looking for the right spot. And they looked in Sonoma and Napa and Mendocino and the Sierra foothills and Contra Costa and Santa Barbara County. And it wasn't until 1989 that they, they ended up in Paso Robles kind of to their surprise as much as everybody else's. That's really amazing. I just was kind of curious what turned their focus to Paso. I mean, you, you pretty much named every wine growing region in, in California. And finally in 89, they stumble into Paso what turned their focus towards Paso? Was it the climate? Was it the soil? It was, it was actually both of those things. So there were really three things that we were looking for within California that we thought would, be, would give us the best chance of succeeding. Um, one of those was the right kind of climate, which meant hot enough and sunny enough to ripen some of the latest ripening grapes in France, but moderated somehow by altitude or ocean influence so that the nights were colder and the earlier ripening Rhone varieties were still viable because it's a pretty broad and diverse collection of grapes. So you've got things like Viognier and Syrah that evolved in the Northern Rhone that need it quite a bit cooler than grapes like Morvedra and Grenache that evolved in Spain. So uh, Paso has this very long growing season. We don't get the first rains of the year until usually mid-November. Um, and it's very sunny. The days can be quite hot, but the nights are always cold. So that slows down the, that extends the growing season. It slows down the ripening. Um, and yet, if you need to wait into late October or early November, you can do it fairly safely. Um, so that was one thing. The climate here is, is, is really conducive. The second was that we wanted enough rainfall to farm without having to irrigate, or at least 
to know that in the long run, there was enough rain on an annual basis that we would be able to wean the vines off of irrigation over time. And so that basically means a minimum of 20 inches of rain a year, and you're much happier if you average 25. Because of where we are in the hills west of Paso, um, only about 11 miles from the ocean, we get 26 inches of rain a year on average, which is a lot for how far south we are in California. And really, you can't go any farther south than, than where we are or very far inland from where we are and still have enough rain. Um, and then finally, the third thing that we were looking for, which you mentioned earlier, was soils. And we were looking for these old seabed calcareous clay soils that are what they have underneath those rounded galets, those river stones that, are, that Chateau Neuf-du-Pape is famous for. Um, but that's, those, are, those are really just at the surface. As the vine's roots go down through the, those galets, they go into the topsoil and then through the topsoil into this old calcareous seabed. And that's rare in California. You can't find that in Napa or Sonoma or Mendocino. You can't find that in the Sierra foothills. It's only in this little sliver of land on the central coast and only within about 20 miles of the ocean. As far as I can tell, and again, I was, as they were doing this looking, I was in high school. I wasn't, I wasn't out here helping look for this. But as far as I can tell, they were driving around, tasting wines, talking to people, and looking at road cuts. They were looking at places where Caltrans had dug into hillsides, and you could see what the soils were like without having to hire backhoes and, and do excavations in, in spots that they were potentially interested in. So, so, yeah, it was a combination of soils and climate and rainfall. And if you take a map of California and you draw where you have each of those three things, it turns out that the only place where you can find all three is this little triangle of land in, in West Paso Robles. I got to say, that's absolutely genius having Caltrans do your digging for you. <laughs> so I think I've mentioned to you in the past, uh, Jason, that one of my favorite wines, and actually the wine that got me started on my journey in wine, was the 1981 Chateau de Bocastel. So it is near and dear to my heart, as is Tablas Creek. But the interesting thing that you said is we want to be inspired by Chateau de Bocastel. We don't want to replicate it. What did you mean by that? So I, I don't think it's really ever particularly fulfilling to try to make a copy of something else. But at the same time, there are traditions that you can build on that give you a good chance of being successful in a new place. I mean, and, and you think of people forget how young California's wine industry is. I mean, everybody has been figuring this out really. I mean, yeah, yes, there's a history that goes back 150 years, but really the modern California wine industry didn't start until the 1960s. So there has been lots of experimentation that's gone on at, at lots of different levels over the last six decades. But the idea that we, we know what the right grapes are for the different regions that we have in California is, I, I, I just don't think that's true yet. So being able to look at where things are broadly similar to some of the regions in the old world that have millennia of experience, and then using that as a starting point for what we want to do in California, I think is... I mean, there's, a, there's a, lo a long tradition of doing that in different parts of the new world, but the end goal is to make a great wine that could only be made at Tablas Creek, where we are, using kind of the color palette that you might associate with Chateau Nifty Pop, but that's not the same as making a copy of the, those amazing wines. I love it. I love the description. Having had the privilege of visiting your vineyard, one of the wonderful things, the, one of the wonderful experiences I had while I was there was visiting your vine petting zoo. 
with with cuttings as i if, if i've got this right jason some of those cuttings came from chateauneuf de pop and it actually added a few extra years when your family was trying to develop uh Tablas creek yeah, they all came from Chateau Nifty Pop. Um, we realized pretty early on that there were some of the grape varieties that we were used to working with at Bocastel that had never been brought into the United States. So we knew we wanted grapes like Cunois and Picapool and Grenache Blanc, and they just didn't exist. But an even bigger problem was that the three grapes we wanted to base our wines on, so Grenache and Morvedra on the red side and Roussan on the white side, were in California but didn't have a great reputation. And the more research we did, the more convinced we became that the clones that ended up in California had been chosen for high productivity rather than high quality. And we didn't want to kind of handicap ourselves by, by, by using just what had already found its way here. So yeah, we took cuttings um, from Bocastel, brought them in through a three-year USDA mandated quarantine, and then built our own grapevine nursery from scratch and had to propagate those six cuttings of each type you we were allowed to bring in into the thousands we needed to plant our own vineyard. So that really extended the time that that Tablas Creek had in, in terms of actually coming into production because, you know, it's one thing to the, just plant some vines and then wait two, three years before the the fruit's viable, but you had to wait an additional three years for the quarantine to clear. Yeah, three years for the quarantine to clear and then two more years of vine propagation. So it was really a five-year hit. And then then you wait three years to get your first crop. So yeah, we bought our bought the property in 1989, but we didn't have our first vintage until 1997. Well, I have to say your wines are worth the wait. <laughs> well, thank you. But um, the one of the luxuries that we had is that neither neither of the families needed to turn Tablas Creek into a profit center in the short term. I mean, the Perrins have their incredible array of things that they do in their own valley. My dad was still running Vineyard Brands. So they had the luxury of developing this in the way that they would be happy with looking back with a few decades perspective. And I remember my dad talking about that at the beginning. He was basically saying that they were trying to make the decisions that would feel right looking back a generation later. So that meant not just living with the, the, the grapevines that were here. It meant not buying grapes to get ourselves started. It meant being able to start by farming organically from the beginning. It was all of these things that we felt like, yeah, that might slow us down from getting a, a crop by a year or two or or maybe things won't be quite as productive, but at the same time, we'll be happy that we made those decisions in the long run. So Jason, in the past, you've mentioned a term of art I'm not familiar with, regenerative farming. What, what is regenerative farming? Do I, and by the way, am I even saying that correctly? You are, you are saying it just right. It's, it's kind of a mouthful. Um, if you, I think people generally have an understanding of organics, and let's, let's start there. So organics is basically, if you can be organic if you don't use certain products. So basically it's a list of things you can't put on your farm. So you can't use chemical herbicides or chemical pesticides or chemical fertilizers. If you don't do those things, you're organic. Regenerative farming kinds of, kind of turns that around and says, yeah, of course you're gonna start by eliminating those chemicals, but really how do you build a healthy and productive ecosystem? That usually involves, it's a more holistic look than, than what organic would be. It usually involves the conscious creation of biodiversity. Um, it focuses on soil health and the soil microbiome. It includes reducing the, the use of, 
of scarce resources. So a move trying to move towards dry farming rather than irrigated farming, trying to, um, if it requires power, trying to use renewable energy rather than non-renewable energy. Then the, the last piece of it is really a, a focus on trying to correct some of the or at least trying to address some of the major societal issues that we face, things like climate change and, and, and scarce resource use, scarce resource availability. For example, for us, we've got a flock of 200 sheep that roam the vineyard every winter. Um, they eat the cover crops that, that we plant and that grow here naturally. So the plants are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. The sheep are eating those plants and returning 80% of that biomass into the soil in the form of their manure. That fixes the carbon in a form that is more durable in the soil. So it basically is this ongoing process of pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and fixing it back into the soil, which obviously it helps with carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but it also enriches the soil that makes the soil more productive. So it's a way of, it's basically a way of farming that is going to benefit your, your, the, the health of the product that you're growing, but also at the same time have these positive externalities that are going to address some of the bigger issues we're facing. So it sounds very cyclical. It is. It's a very, it's a totally natural thing to do. If you think of things like crop rotation or um, the the planting of cover crops or permaculture, a, lo a lot of the things that I think we think of as being very traditional, um, this is kind of a look back at those traditions, but kind of bolstered by modern scientific method and measurements. So I want to circle back to something real quick that you had mentioned about the grapes that you were bringing in all those years ago from Chetneuf to Pop. And, and we were talking about, I think, uh, Mouvedra, Senso, Picpool. You have another one that's recently arrived at Tablas Creek. I think it's called Muscardin. Am I saying <laughs> that right? Almost. Muscardin. Muscardin. So you have Muscardin. Now tell me about Muscardin and where that fits into the great portfolio. Um, so short answer is we don't know yet. <laughs> okay. um, the, but it's a, it's the, it's a part of a larger thing that we've been, been trying to work on now for, I mean, really since we started, but we, so we basically imported grapevines in two waves. We had the initial wave of nine grape varieties that we brought in starting in 1989. And those were pretty much all in the vineyard and in production by 2000. Um, and then in 2003, my dad decided that we'd had such good success with some of the grapes like Cunois, like Grenache Blanc, like Picpoul, that are considered kind of trace varieties in Chateauneuf that we should bring in the rest of the Chateauneuf collection because we, we just didn't know. Some of them would for sure surprise us and be really good. And so we took cuttings of all of the rest of the Chateauneuf varieties. There were seven in total that we didn't yet have. Um, and brought them into the quarantine program in 2003. And we've been getting them out of quarantine little by little over the last 15 years. So some of these are reasonably well-known, like Senso is reasonably well-known. Bourbalanc is reasonably well-known. But there are others that are incredibly rare, like Vacarez and Muscardin, which you mentioned, where there's about 20 acres planted in, in France. And then Picardin, which is, which is the rarest of the ones that we brought in, where we planted half an acre in 2013 and increased the world's population by 40%. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so these are grapes that are, that are traditional in Chateauneuf. They're, in many cases, they were much more commonly planted pre-phylloxera in the 19th century, but they've become rare for various reasons, some of which are because of the way that they taste, some of which are because of the way that they grow. Some of it is just a 
in a reaction to the fashions of the times, particularly in the 60s and 70s, when a lot of things were being put in the ground in Chateauneuf. Um, and Muscardin has the, the honor of being the last of those seven trace Chateauneuf varieties and the last of the 14 Beaucastel Chateauneuf du Pop grapes to arrive and be planted in the vineyard at Tablas Creek. So we got our first crop off of that last year, um, enough to make about five gallons of Muscardin. <laughs> Um, but, and that's not a significant quantity. That's a, that's what a homeopathic quantities, but it's a milestone to now have all 14 of the Chateauneuf du Pop grapes in production. It's just exciting to think of what that's, what that's going to lead to, what the, what the potential is going to be of that. So when you say 14 varieties of Chateauneuf du Pop grapes, I, for our listeners who may not know, Chateauneuf du Pop is very famous for a wine that is blended. How many Grape varieties can actually go into Chateauneuf de Pop Red and Chateauneuf de Pop White? Well, the thing is, you can have whites in the Chateauneuf de Pop Red. So, Bocastel is famous for using all of the varieties, including the whites, in small quantities in their, in their red. So, um, there are eight red varieties and six white varieties in that 14. And if people, I, I'm sure there are some people who have either done some, uh, done some wine studies and are saying, wait, but aren't there 13? Um, but the, the thing is they don't count Grenache Noir and Grenache Blanc separately in the 13. It, they just call it Grenache. So really they should. Those are, Grenache Blanc is the most widely planted white grape in Chateauneuf. And, so, and yet it doesn't have its own listing on the official posters. So that's how you get from 13 to 14 is Grenache Noir and Grenache Blanc get separated. But there's eight reds and six whites in that family. Well, I just learned something new today. <laughs> that's all, I did not know that. I always thought it was 13 and period, end of story. You know, maybe they shouldn't call it Chateauneuf to Pop. Maybe they should just call it Kitchen Sink. Well, I mean, even that, and, and this is something that I think is surprising for a lot of American wine drinkers, is that, I mean, there's 3,000 grapes that people make wine with around the world. Um, and of those, about 500 have made their way to California at this point. So it's, it's just a small subset of what's out there. And I'm sure that there were many hundreds or maybe even thousands more grape varieties that existed before phylloxera and, and just never made it through that extinction event. So when you talk about Chateauneuf having 14 grapes that can go into it, that's even then a very small subset of grapes that have been grown together and shown over the test of, of centuries and, and millennia that, they've, that they work well in the same kind of climate and soils. And while that's true, I do believe, though, that modern wine consumers are, have become used to having wines, whether red or white, that have one variety or, or, or maybe a few, right? You know, you might get some red blends. Some people might talk about having a Cabernet Sauvignon, a Merlot, Cabernet Franc blend. But I think more modern consumers here in America traditionally think of wines as a single variety, Chardonnay or Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot. Now, in, in your line of work, and this is where I'm going to segue into the Rhone Rangers, my observation is we are drinking more uh, in America, red blends, and the Rhone varieties really lend themselves to that blend. And I'd love for you to just touch a little bit about what the Rhone Rangers project is and where that's going. Right. So there's, there's kind of two pieces to that. The, the piece about how these grapes fit together 
it really is a question of knowing what the flavor profiles are of the different varieties. So the common Rhone blend is, is usually thought of as being a blend of Grenache and Syrah and Morvedra. And each of them plays a really, really interesting and unique role in a blend. So of the three, Grenache is the juiciest and the highest in acid. Um, it's also the highest in alcohol and it can be fairly pale in color. So it, it can be like cherry candy on its own. Um, a great complement for that is Syrah, which is dark and tannic and spicy and minerally, but can be kind of austere on its own and fairly low in acid. Uh, Morvedra is kind of the, the third leg of that stool where it's earthy and meaty, um, loamy, chocolatey, um, and it has tannins, but the tannins don't have the, the hardness of either um, Grenache or Syrah tannins. And it, uh, it helps both of them age well because it's resistant to oxidation. So each of them kind of fits together in a way that it kind of plugs a hole that the others have. Um, and I often make the analogy of how often do you cook with just one ingredient? I mean, not that a single ingredient can't be wonderful. I mean, a really beautiful ripe tomato um, or, a, or an incredible apple, but almost always you are able to build something that none of those individual ingredients can do when you have the opportunity to put those different and complementary flavors together. Yes, I believe it's called a Neapolitan pizza. <laughs> exactly. How many ingredients is allowed on that? Not very many, but no, more than one. Three. <laughs> um, so in terms of what the Rhone Rangers does, the Rhone Rangers is, the, the term was coined by the Wine Spectator in, I think this was 1987, uh, where they managed to convince Randall Graham, the, the founder and genius behind Bonnie Dune, to pose on the cover of Wine Spectator in a Lone Ranger outfit with a horse. That kind of, uh, th that phrase got generalized to the whole category of producers in America who were using the Rhone as an inspiration. It's now uh, an organization, it's a nonprofit um, with 150 or so winery members, all of whom, all of whom produce wines using Rhone varieties and who work together to try to try to bring recognition to the category that we're all a part of. It's a, it's a cool organization. I've been on the board for, it feels like forever. I think it's close to 15 years at this point. And we do, at the moment, we're doing virtual tastings every month on a different theme in a non-COVID time. We also um, hold in-person events. We generally have been traveling around the country. We did a couple in DC over the years, but we've also done them in Chicago and New York and Boston and LA and San Francisco and Seattle try to just bring these producers together from different parts of California and, and the United States to, to help carve out a little larger slice of the, the wine pie for, for the, the, the category that we all love. Well, I can't wait for this pandemic to, to uh, run its course so that we can do these in-person tastings again, because I got to tell you, having attended a few of the Run Rangers programs in Washington, D.C., I don't know that I've had uh, much more fun anywhere else at any other of these professional wine tastings because, come on, uh, to be completely candid, those guys know how to party. <laughs> I think we're very good at not taking ourselves too seriously. Thank goodness. So now we're coming up to my favorite part of the podcast. What's in your glass? 
So Jason, I understand you have two wines that you're going to open and taste for us today that I'm very excited about. And I'm pretty familiar with both of these wines, having been fans of them in the past, but I'm going to let you take it from here. Tell me what's in, uh, in your first glass here. So I, I picked a, a red and a white. Um, I thought it was important to show um, a white Rhone blend as well as a red. I think obviously reds are more, more familiar to probably more of your listeners, but the category of white Rhones is growing really fast and it's, it's super exciting. Um, it turns out that these white varieties are generally from warmer parts of Europe and they do really well in California. You don't have to hide them in these kind of foggy, coastal pockets. You can put a grape like Picpoul or Grenache Blanc on a sunny hillside in Paso Robles or Sonoma and, and let it do its thing. So um, the, the white that I picked is our Patelin de Tablas Blanc, which is a blend based on Grenache Blanc, but with additions of Viognier, Roussan, Marsan, and a little bit of Claret Blanche. The idea behind it is to contrast the brighter white Rhone varieties, so basically Grenache Blanc and Claret, um, with the richer white Rhone varieties, so Viognier, Roussan, Marsan. And people, I think, maybe have this idea that white Rhones are on the denser, lusher, lower acid side because the grapes that were most commonly exported from France, so Viognier, Roussan, Marsan, are all like that. But there's actually more high acid white Rhone varieties than there are low acid white Rhone varieties. And Grenache Blanc is a great example. It's got this kind of vibrant, citrusy brightness. And then you give it depth by the additions of the Viognier and the Roussan and the Marsan. So we do this entirely in stainless steel. Um, the goal is to, to, to preserve that brightness and then let the, the floral, honeyed, Roussan, Marsan, Viognier characteristics come in and provide depth and complexity. My wife is a Francophile, and her first love is champagne. Her second love are Chateauneuf de Pop Blanc. And I will tell you that one of her very favorite wines, domestic, is absolutely this wine. She adores this wine. I, I really think that there's a huge amount of potential for growth in white roans in California and Washington and Oregon. And, and not just those more familiar, richer Viognier, Roussan, Marsan um, sorts of wines. I think those higher acid white Rhone varieties are incredibly well positioned to produce wines that kind of check all the boxes for people that have richness, that have brightness, that do well in a, in a warm climate, do well in droughts. And I think, I think you'll see a lot more of them. You already are seeing a lot more of them, but I think that's even going to accelerate in the future. So out of curiosity, Jason, what would you pair with this wine? It's pretty flexible. So, I mean, the classic pairing would be like seafood prepared with garlic and olive oil. So think like, uh, like a scampi or a bouillabaisse or like mussels marinière. I mean, that's like the classic white roan pairing would be mussels and white wine and garlic, but it's, it, it's pretty flexible. I mean, they've got enough weight and body to, to stand up to pork and chicken preparations. Um, they go great with Asian flavors because they kind of float right over the top of spice. So um, it's a great pairing with kind of spicy Sichuan preparations of things. So those are, those are kind of my go-tos. Very cool. We typically have this wine with uh, a roast chicken uh, that's been marinated, if you will, in lemon. Yep. And it just really makes this, uh, this, the chicken sing. 
Yeah, that's a lovely, that's always a lovely classic pairing. Right. So what's in, uh, what's in your second class here? So second glass is our, our flagship red. This is the Esprit de Tablas. Um, this is a, a wine that we always base on Morvedra um, and then add secondary amounts of Grenache and Syrah and just a little bit of Cunoise. And so I talked a little bit earlier about what each of those bring, but this puts Morvedra at the four. So that kind of chocolatey, loamy, um, dark red fruited base. And then secondary additions of Grenache for brightness and, and acidity, Syrah for kind of dark, smoky minerality, and then just a little bit of Cunoise that I, I think of as, as being a little bit like squeezing a dash of lemon onto a dish of food. It's not necessarily that you taste the lemon, it's that you're, you're raising the acidity and that brings out all of the other flavors that are there. And that's, that's kind of Cunoise's role in this blend. And what vintage is this? So I picked 2018, which is our new release, okay. um, which is, it's a vintage that shows a little bit of a cooler climate signature. It's kind of tucked in between two warmer vintages, 17 and 19 are both warmer. Those are a little more lush and kind of classically Californian. The 18 is super elegant. I love the, the kind of minerality, a little bit of saline character that you get on the finish. And then the, just the brightness and purity of the flavors we got from 18. So I'm going to ask the same question. What would you pair this with? So this is also really flexible. Um, obviously, any sort of um, braised meat dish. I mean, the classic, if you ask the, the French what to pair it with, they will, they'll look at you and say, duck. Well, of um, course. <laughs> like, of course. Like, I have that all the time. Um, but, but really, um, it's beautiful with, with lamb. I particularly like it with leg of lamb, with a little bit of the, the stronger lamb character, um, with, particularly if you rub it with rosemary and, and garlic. But I mean, it's it's winter now. Any sort of braised braised red meat dishes, braised short ribs, and it has enough. Again, it has enough brightness and freshness that you can also think of things that might be normally in the more Pinot Noir kind of spectrum. So even something like um, like a, like grilled salmon, it goes beautifully with, and that same roast chicken that is that that goes well with the with the white rones. It's actually it's equally good with the red rones. Well, I had my last bottle of the 2009 Esprit de Tablas uh, with roast duck last week. And, okay, so maybe you are one of those people who has duck around the house regularly enough to have it be a good pairing. But We, we actually do, but tonight I'm actually making braised short ribs, so now I, wanna, now I want this wine with the braised short ribs. I already had my last bottle of the 09. now I've got to go to the 2010, which is not a travesty either. Uh, not the 10 is showing beautifully right now. And so tell me, what are the, what's the price points on, the, on these two wines? So the, the Patelin Blanc, we do three Patelin de Tablas wines, so a red, a white, and a rosé. And those are all, the, the idea is that these are wines that people can open on a Tuesday night if they want to and feel good about it. I mean, they're $25 suggested retail. Our goal with those wines is to, is to broaden the reach of not just Tablas Creek, but the whole category of California Rones and, and get people who don't already know that this is where where they might fall in love to, to try a wine and, and expand their horizons. And the price point on the Esprit? And the Esprit Red is $60. And that's, again, that's our pick of the best 15% or so of the lots that come into the cellar for the vintage. Very cool. And national distribution, we can pick these wines up pretty much anywhere yeah. or, or we can go to the winery website? Those are your two options. Um, I mean, we do have, because we work with vineyard brands, we do at least have a distributor in every state. That doesn't mean that there's necessarily much in the way of distribution. 
Uh, but at the very least, people who have a favorite local wine shop that they like to work with should be able to go in and say, okay, this is a wine that I want. It's distributed by Vineyard Brands. Can you order it for me? Yeah, I mean, we do sell more than half of our production direct, either um, out to send it out to one of our wine clubs or from people just placing orders on our website. So that's that's an option in most of the country too. And your website is? Super easy, tablascreek.com. There's the shameless plug. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) My pleasure. And it has been my absolute pleasure, Jason, to have you on the podcast today. I cannot thank you enough for making the time to be with me. Excellent. Thank you for the invitation, Scott. It was a pleasure. That'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. This episode was produced by Sarah Beth Hensley, and the music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and catch my Wine of the Week show every Friday evening on WTOP and WTOP.com. And remember, until the next time, do good, drink well.